Sachiro's Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Cote, and today we're talking about Parasite. <laughs> Wait, no. <laughs> yes, today we're covering One Wonderful Sunday from 1947. After Kurosawa's uh, communist phase, there were all these people leaving Toho, and they formed Shin Toho, or New Toho. Ah. So the company actually had no stars left because, like, all the actors walked. Ah, it shows. Yeah. So they were like, all right, we got to have this movie with no names now. We have to essentially create new stars out of these people. So we're winding up with kind of like a more neo-realism movie than anything, which definitely feels like a departure from everything that we've seen so far. Yeah, I like noticed, I mean, if not right away within the first couple minutes, that this very clearly was neo-realism inspired. Though you could still see like there were some very obvious studio scenes. And actually, I, I thought they stuck out compared to like the rest of the more neo-realist. I mean... A lot of it was like, you know, shot on location just in, I assume, Tokyo. Yeah, it's all in Tokyo. Then there's some scenes where it's like, oh, they're on a set. It like feels kind of weird now. Like <laughs> that looks so much more fake compared to like running through the streets. Don't get more real than real. But uh, yeah, no, this is clearly muralism inspired in content. And speaking of content, should I run through the plot? Sure. Poor, engaged couple Masako and Yuzo try to enjoy a Sunday in post-war Tokyo with only 35 yen. Optimistic Misako consistently raises pessimistic Yuzo from his despair as their money dwindles throughout the day. The pair checks out housing options in the city, play baseball with a group of children, go to the zoo, attempt to get tickets to various shows, pretend to own their own cafe, and finally mime an orchestra performance in an empty amphitheater. With renewed optimism and a passion about the future, Yuzo says goodbye to Misako as she boards a train, promising to see him again next Sunday. Yeah, so it's set in 2020. A poor couple can't navigate the city life. Yeah, this this movie took place in February 2020. <laughs> it's cold. Everyone's homeless. They learn a house is for rent. Not even how much, just the, the fact that a house is for rent at all. And they're like, holy shit, where? <laughs> we gotta go there right now. They run to the house that's for rent. And the, the guy's like, I grew up in this bedroom. It has no light. The only view is of the toilets of the factory. It has no climate control. It's hot in the summer. It's cold in the winter. <laughs> Don't rent it. And then the landlord comes in and he just looks at him and he's like, oh, so uh, you're interested then. <laughs> I actually, until you mentioned that, forgot how extremely funny that scene was. I thought that was so funny. Like, and they go to the secretary for this housing unit and he's just like miserable. And he's like, I'm begging you don't rent this apartment yeah. and the the guy comes in like three times like he, it's like a, a sketch honestly it's just like alternating between like hey no hey no yeah he says nothing he just looks at him that's a few minutes into the film the film starts with yuzo waiting for masako to show up on i guess the only day of the week that they can see each other when they're not busy which is sunday i don't think they mention where she lives yeah i assume she lives in like a suburb but he lives in Tokyo, and he, they're both totally poor. Yeah, they both have literally zero yen in the bank and 35 yen between Yuzo and Masako. Yeah, I think she has more than him. She has, yeah, five more yen than he is. Yuzo sees a cigarette on the ground, picks it up, and then Masako slaps it out of his hand. That's how poor and desperate these folks are. I was like, oh boy, is this going to be like the American Beauty plastic bag or something? And then it turns oh, no. out <laughs> he's like just going to smoke it. It goes up, and then she's just standing right next to him. Yeah. They're both on, like, the opposite sides of the corners, which is cool. Mm -hmm. And she's just like, come on, dude. Yeah. In a way, I mean, that was almost predictable, like a lot of this movie, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it was cute. Knocks it out of the hand. Yuzo just starts off the movie a miserable piece of shit. <laughs> so unfun. So mean to Masako. <laughs> Such, like, an asshole. She's like, why are you always mean to me? He's like, I, you're the only thing that makes me happy. <laughs> it's like, uh. That's how we through the film of him being mean almost the entire time. I feel like the only two times that you see any life in his eyes are when they play baseball with the kids and they go to the zoo. 
The zoo scene was also very funny. I love that. I love that. Yeah. But Masako was like, come on, Yuzo, let's have a good time. She's very fun, optimistic. She goes into this module house that you can buy for a small amount of money. Or I guess 100,000 yen, which wasn't a small amount of money, but it was cheaper than most houses. When we're talking about Kurosawa's tendency to kind of start and end in the same place, we're kind of seeing it work its way through this film a lot, where we're starting and ending in a train station, starting and ending with a focus on the cigarette, starting in a really nice house that they could never afford, and then ending in a totally abandoned, empty lot, devoid of any livable conditions, which I think is really cool. Funny aside from reading Kurosawa's autobiography, so they filmed a lot of this movie secretly. Oh. Because these guys weren't actors that anyone knew, they could actually, like, film in the street. Mm. And so they had the, the camera, like, in a box with, like, a little hole for the lens. Oh. Uh, at one point, they were filming on, like, one of the train stations, and he had the shot on the ground. Yeah, that was cool. Some dude stepped right in front of it. Kurosawa didn't really know how to, like, get the guy out, because how could you explain that you're secretly filming back in, like, 1947? Yeah, that's weird. And so he, like tried to like lightly push the guy and it like didn't work so he like did it again and then the guy instinctively just pulled out his wallet and he thought Kurosawa was mugging him. <laughs> and Kara Kurosawa was like no I'm the most famous director of all time. Not yet though. <laughs> no I'm Japan's greatest director. Yeah I just wanted that, that opening shot was cool with the train. I didn't know that's a funny story that goes along with it. Like the last movie there's like a lot of shots of uh, feet and people walking so I think I feel like it might have been like one of those shots or something. Yeah Tarantino. Yeah, exactly. The, the proto-Tarantino. Another uh, influence. Yeah. I think the very first shot is, literally, it's like the camera is sitting on the ground one inch from the train platform. That camera almost didn't make it. It's it's a cool... Listen, any movie that starts with a train automatically, like, goes up a star in my book. Yeah. This, uh... If, you know the super old movies where the people jumped away from the screen because the train was coming towards it? Uh, if they saw this movie, they would have freaked the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, I would have jumped toward it, but that's just me. I think Kurosawa sets up these characters very clearly immediately. She's dressed in white and is the optimist, and he's dressed in all black, just towering over her drenching misery and rain. The class signifiers must have been much more clear in Japan at the time, because there's one scene in which they go into a cabaret called Cabaret Drum, which is silly. Yeah, I love that. And he walks in, and I think he looks pretty nice. I'm like, this is a nice outfit. I would wear that. And then immediately everyone's like, this man is poor as shit. <laughs> He doesn't, he doesn't deserve to walk in here. Yeah, it's because he's got all the coats. Yeah, he's got, like, I guess, several coats on, but he immediately walks in, everyone is like, yo, fuck this guy. He does not belong here. Get him out. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of the stuff, like, the social commentary he makes here is, like, shockingly relevant still. Yeah, I mean, definitely, like, the class inequality is shown pretty starkly and pretty well. I, I thought it was very good in the beginning when they go to this apartment to look at or whatever, this, like, the house, pre-built house. And Yuzo's like, oh, this house is shitty, and it's so expensive. And then Masako's like, oh, wouldn't it be nice? There's, like, a lot of light. And then, like, this rich couple comes in and is like, oh, this house is kind of crappy, but, I mean, it's so damn cheap that I guess it's fine. <laughs> and it's, like, <laughs> such a contrast. Yeah, oof. <laughs> you could see that in a scene today from kids looking at an apartment being like, oh, this apartment's $1,000. Like, I could never afford this, and it's kind of shitty. And someone being like, well, this apartment's, like, cheap as hell. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be like, why would I settle for this apartment? Yeah, and when they go to the shitty apartment that's 600 yen, and the guy's like, this is the most miserable place in the world, I'm begging you not to rent it. I was like, this is also realistic. <laughs> it feels very relevant to today. Yeah, actually, when they overheard the couple talking about a house for rent, and then she goes up and asks, I was like, this is like an Elaine bit from Seinfeld. Very bold to interrupt these rich people. <laughs> I guess it would have been, like, not that weird at the time, and, like, it seemed not that weird enough, but, like, it was wild. The whole economy is totally in the can at this point. Post-war Japan, you know, everything is just a mess. They're lucky to even have jobs. Yeah, the, the rich are still rich. Yeah, of course. And the poor get poorer. 
because that's how the world works. That doesn't change. It's been, what, 80 years? There's a few other little uh, class thing. I mean, the whole movie is about class. But one really interesting thing is when they're eating rice balls uh, up on a hill and they see the poorest kid in cinema history. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that, that was so strange. He, like, comes out of the mist. Yeah, it's, like, very, like, a mysterious stranger figure covered in mud. And he's like, I'll pay you for this. And it's like, please just take the food. Don't be dumb. Let me pay you. Kid, you're homeless. No, the kid is homeless, but he has more money than they do by like a lot. He's probably getting money on the street. <laughs> the kid's like, I'll give you 10 yen for that rice ball, which is half the money they currently have in their wallet. And he pulls that out of a stack of like a thick wad of money. So this kid is one, homeless, and B, has way more money than these people have. <laughs> it's homeless and rich versus they have a home, but they're poor. They're iPhone poor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they they send green text messages, not blue text messages. Ooh. 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 But yeah, that scene was very strange. Then they go up to the kid, and the kid's like, yo, fuck off. I just wanted the rice ball. <laughs> I love it. He's like, I don't want your sympathy. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, the kid wrecked them, actually. Anyway, all right, bye, I guess. The kid completely won that. Which was very different also from the scene where they're playing with kids. They're playing baseball in, like, the middle of the road. The least safe way to play baseball I could ever imagine. I thought that was fine. I was like, I could imagine this scene. It's very cute. I thought that whole thing was, was very well done. I, I loved it, but I was like, there's no way this isn't going through a window. Yeah, I mean, it went through that guy's poster. <laughs> there's buildings all around them. Why would you do this? But it's like kids playing the line. You know, you can imagine the kids going, a uh, car, and then having to get out of the way. As, but it's, instead, it's a uh, cow. I like that moment, too, when their game gets totally interrupted by two things, by a military car driving through, and, yeah, well, it's like a, a cow carrying farm stuff. The childish youth and fun, like, the one thing that's actually getting a smile on Yuzo's face, and it's blatantly interrupted by the real world, which I, I liked that moment a lot. Yeah, no, I thought that whole scene was good. I thought it was funny when it goes into the guy's shop, and then he has to pay for the, <laughs> the things at a discount. He forces him to buy the most unsightly food I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what it looked like a ball, and I guess it was smashed by the baseball when it fell through the window. Also, it looks like they ripped his poster, but he didn't say anything about it. It went through the poster. I think that's what he was actually paying for. I think that was food that he couldn't sell, so we forced him to take it so he didn't have to just, like, throw it out. Oh, okay. That's how I interpreted it. That makes sense. I thought the ball hit it, and I was like, that's nuts. Yuzo is a veteran, which is another reason that he's very disillusioned and distraught. This is fresh out of World War II, a loss. His old military friend is the manager or something at this cabaret, and he goes to see them, and they bring him downstairs to, like, some weird bar or secret red light district or something. <laughs> it seems like they think that he is extorting them, or, like, he's, like, a mob guy who's trying to get money from the owner. Yeah, he's, like, trying to finesse money out of him, because then he meets up with that drunk dude who's, like... Oh, nice. You you knew the guy's name. That'll get you extra. And then he like always is like, wait, stop the waiter from dumping the scraps into the garbage. I want to eat them and put them all on a plate. This is like a hundred dollars. Yeah. Yeah, that was funny. That was me as, as a waiter. Yeah, that seems wild. And then they like give him something for his time. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was yen or tickets to the cabaret. I think it was money. On the inside, like I, th I felt like that showed a nice character beat where it's like, he's so angry and wants money and yet when he gets it in this like unsound gross kind of way where he just doesn't feel right he just leaves it behind despite the whole time like really wanting it yeah i mean i thought that was stupid of him but i guess it was honorable <laughs> yeah well an economic decision yes but he's like wait this is not i i didn't want to rob you <laughs> yeah, i didn't want to rob my old friend they do go to a zoo it's in between cabaret drum and <laughs> just complete misery <laughs> The zoo is typically that moment. Scenes shot seconds before disaster. 
Yeah, it's the last stop before Oblivion. <laughs> but yeah, I love it where, like, they're just comparing every zoo animal to, like, types of people or specific people that they know. The zoo scene was extremely funny. They see this bird and they're like, that bird's depressed. I have a long neck. I saw the giraffes. I was like, oh, there I am. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was super funny when they're like, yo, those giraffes have a nice house. And it's got central heating, too. <laughs> like, <laughs> those giraffes live better lives than we do. Yeah. That's how I feel like seeing tigers eat, like, sirloin steak. I'm like, damn, I wish that was me. Yeah, they probably thought that, too. These guys are well-fed, they're happy, they don't know human misery. They're, they're not poor, they're just endangered. No, that whole scene was uh, very good. They go up to a monkey like, that monkey thinks it's better than us. <laughs> yeah, they were, like, challenged by a monkey. They're yeah, like, they're like, that monkey thinks that we're the show, and he's the visitor. They're like, wait a minute, who's the real show here? Hmm. <laughs> it's all extremely funny. And we don't see them either, it's only shots of the animals, which I, I think is cool. That was a, a budgetary constraint, <laughs> but... I think that was just one guy with the camera going to the zoo, taking shots and thinking, oh, let's say something about this. This really says a lot about society. Yeah. <laughs> At one point, they go, I don't even know what animal, but they go up to some animal, they're like, this animal's depressed. And then she's like, you're depressed. No, you so. And then he becomes the Chad meme. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that whole scene was cute. There's an extremely frustrating scene at the concert. Seeing the unfinished Schubert piece, which is wild, they go to this concert and then they get scalped for tickets and they have exactly enough money to buy two tickets. It was blood boiling. Also another, you know, Kurosawa moment because the rain starts and then they go to that and you're like, oh, you just know that something negative is about to happen. Yeah, this can't. They can't get what they want. Rain is always signifying like the saddest moments for Kurosawa to bring that out in the environment. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, the fact that they get scalped twice and it's the two people right in front of them. And then later on when he goes to fight them over the scalping... All these other people come out of the crowd. This is like an organized scalping group all throughout this crowd to rip off tickets and charge an extra like 50%. It was a little unclear what was going on there. It was definitely like the two guys scalping. And I think he punched the guy. And I think it was just like citizen bystanders who was like, hey, you can't punch that guy. But he like didn't stand up for himself. He wasn't like, hey, this guy's scalping tickets and we can't afford them now. So he just gets wrecked by like a bunch of people who just beat the shit out of him and they have to leave. And that's like the lowest point in the film except for the next scene, which is arguably lower. Yeah, where they wind up in Yuzo's house, we finally see, and boy, is it a dump. Yeah, Yuzo's house is a total dump. There is, like, a cleaning lady, though, which is strange. And then, like, in a very weird scene, Yuzo essentially, like, has a breakdown and then tries to assault Masako, kind of. Kind of. He did something similar to that in a previous scene. I noticed it was, like, you know, the rule of threes. There was a moment where he tries to kiss her earlier, and she pushes him off, despite the fact that they're engaged. Yeah, they've been dating for years? Yeah, I, yeah something. Uh, at least a year, maybe nine months. Nine months minimum, because, like, it's winter, and they met in spring. Yeah, he tries to kiss her again, and this one, he's just, like, emotionally distraught and all over the place. At the end, she finally accepts it, and they finally make out. It was kind of wild. I was thinking the entire film, I was like, you should just go home and, and have sex. Like, there's nothing to do. You don't have any money. <laughs> like, yeah, that, that's that, that's free. People pay for that, actually. Prostitution is still legal in Japan at this point. She has extreme hangups about physical contact with him, which is whatever, fair, I guess, especially because he's not great about it. I don't know. He, he's, he's probably not the best. Yeah, but that was like a very weird inner passage. And it was that point in the movie where I was like, oh, this is really rough. Like, it's just unpleasant. I don't think I'm learning anything important about poverty <laughs> or anything. I'm like, what's going on? I do feel like the film hits a few repetitive beats and lingers on some of them for too long. Like, I feel like the film probably could have been, like, maybe 20 minutes shorter. Oh, yeah. It's coming in a little under two hours. The one thing I did like during that was when there's, like, the dripping from his ceiling into his tatami mats. 
He's just sitting there letting it happen, and she grabs a bowl from outside and uses that to get the water, and it's like two totally different approaches to the scenario where he's so resigned to his fate, and she's like, yeah, being optimistic might not always be practical, but like, you could at least try to improve your life a little, even just to not let your tatami mats be soiled. Yeah, no, that was nice. It was a good character moment. You know what I didn't get was that dog, that little dog toy thing. Oh yeah, the dog that lets you know that you shouldn't assault your girlfriend. So I thought when I saw it. Every man needs that dog. She leaves behind her bag when she runs away. Then he sees that she has a little dog and it's like very cute. And her bag is actually very cute. And I was like contemporary. It's like a butterfly in it. Yeah, I was like, that's a nice bag. I'd have that bag. And then he sees like this little stuffed dog she has. And he's like, oh, wait, I'm super shady to her. I shouldn't be super shady to her all the time. Oops. <laughs> wait a minute. I love this woman. And then she comes back and like she almost strips, but then breaks down. Unclear what's happening there. Then they reconcile and they decide to go get some tea. In what is, I think, an extremely funny scene, getting ripped off at this coffee shop cures them of their poverty depression because <laughs> they get so mad when this coffee shop charges them twice the cost of coffee just to have milk in it that they decide once and for all to uh, open the Hyacinth Cafe. And even if it takes years, they're going to do it. They're going to find a way. They're going to sell the best coffee in town. They're going to provide excellent service. And they have this very cute scene in this like completely wasteful, just like industrial, whatever. Yeah, it's definitely like full of chemicals and more poor people kind of emerge out of the missed like uh, the kid did earlier when i was like is this real like what's happening here like that was very weird i don't i don't know if those people were even supposed to be poor i think they were just watching them be awkward in public and they were feeling judged they looked poor they looked they did not look good you hardly see them though they're like in extreme silhouette so i don't know it was unclear my heart like skipped a beat when it cut to them because i was so not expecting something like that and i was like this isn't the movie i ever expected to like surprise me in any way and then when that happened i was just like whoa like whoa. yeah what? that was weird <laughs> They get shocked by those people. Yeah, as they were playing out, what was like a, actually a very charming scene and the point at which I was like, okay, maybe this movie is redeemable. <laughs> I totally went with it. I loved him realizing like, I don't have enough money for this. He hands the guy money and it's not enough. And like before <laughs> the guy could even say what, he's like, wait a minute, this isn't enough. He just takes off one of his like 10 coats that he's wearing. <laughs> gives him his coat. <laughs> and gives it to the guy. And he's like, you can just pay next time. And he's like, no. He's like, bye. I have to give you my coats. <laughs> And then he walks back in, pulls, like, the towels from his pockets, and then leaves. Yeah, <laughs> he, like, takes his handkerchief. Extremely funny. <laughs> like, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't include that. That's that's the tip. Is the <laughs> yeah. All of that is followed by an extremely charming scene, and maybe a preview for, for Ikaru to come. I don't know, because I haven't seen it. Oh, definitely. They are swinging. They're standing up on these wooden swings that are connected to space. You just never see what they're connected to. It's just these swings in total isolation set against the moon. It's a beautiful scene. Yeah, the moon centered and then like their swings are coming in and out, leaving frame, which I think looks really cool and isn't like totally conventional, honestly, to like have so much of something constantly appearing and disappearing at this point. I assume that was like his idea to have the swings go to off screen and just have them in and out in the frame. It was it was really nice. That's, I think, the same swing set we're going to see in Akiru eventually. And I also noticed another allusion to the future, because he has a line at one point where he's like, I'm just a stray dog. I'm like, ah, yeah. oh, ha, ha. we're going to see that pretty soon. Yeah, he's building themes like swings and stray dogs. <laughs> yeah, I thought that scene was beautiful, actually. Just like really nice. Yeah, I love that. So then there's the grand finale in the amphitheater. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's really cool. So Yuzo is miming, conducting the orchestra, which is the same show that they saw on their first date, however long ago that was. Hmm, yeah. And he keeps trying to, like, get with her kind of optimistic spirit, because he kind of had that going earlier when they were miming out the coffee shop, and then he just, he's struggling with it, he's struggling with it, and then he finally gets it, 
after our help. Yeah, yeah. There's a little thing in between. Yeah. So Yuzu's like, "Hey, Masako, sit in the audience. Listen, you can you can hear the orchestra." And I was like, "Oh, this is cute. I can kind of see where this is going because uh, I've seen movies before." And then he just keeps trying, and he just keeps failing. Eventually, he just like shuts down. Masako comes up, and then she's like, "Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! Come on, you can do this. Like I can hear them. Like this is fun. I want to do this." And then she like stands up and then does a direct address to the audience for like two minutes. Which is crazy. Yeah, breaks the fourth wall, which Kurosawa has never done before, and I don't know if he ever does again. It's really strange. It was completely insane. Masako essentially says to the audience, clap for us, come on, like, clap for us, give us your good energy, look out for all the poor couples in the world who are just trying our best. We're so cold and we're so miserable. Please just, like, have sympathy for us. It's super blunt. I love Kurosawa's humanism, and this is, like, really preachy here. Yeah, really hamming it up. It's so, honestly so funny to think about a Japanese crowd in 1947 being faced with this scene. A non-responsive crowd. Oh, yeah. All I could think was, like, what was it like in theaters? If you want to know, you can read Kurosawa's autobiography because he says that it absolutely tanked in Japan. Oh, that no. He was, that there was absolutely <laughs> no audience participation at all. He was watching it with people, and he's like, oh, my God, this is so awkward. Like, everyone is just has is so uncomfortable. They're supposed to clap. I was clapping. I was snapping. I took such a risk. But then when it played in France. Oh, uh, hell yeah. The French loved it. Oh, uh, yeah. And they were giving him the proper applause that he was hoping for. And he was like, finally, just as Nolan intended. And that's how he knew that he was going to be a Western director. <laughs> he got to see his own movie done that way. And he said it was like really a beautiful moment because he says like, the audience is already a participant in the movie by partaking in watching it. So he's like, I'm going to get them involved and try to create like a, you know, Tinkerbell moment. In a Blue's Clues level direct address when they look at the audience and say, clap for us. And then they say, thank you for clapping. Please clap. <laughs> um, but no, actually, I was thinking like in theaters, this must be an extremely beautiful moment. I was snapping in my chair and I was like, in the entire scene. For, like, the previous, like, ten minutes, I was like, Akira Kurosawa, you have to play the music. If we don't hear the music as they stand in this empty amphitheater, I'm gonna lose my goddamn mind. I'm gonna give this movie one star. <laughs> but then finally, after that, he gets up, and then you hear the orchestra start to toot, and you're like, oh yeah, here we go. Here comes, like, the scene that you've been waiting for for so long. And a lot of the movie is like that, where it's just, like, building to this moment, and then they, like, shut it down, and they shut it down. And then finally, he conducts. Yeah, and I love that he's constantly showing the leaves blowing to, like, carry the musical tune so we're not just watching him wave at nothing yeah it's not just like a <laughs> direct shot of him we're still given something that's like a little visually interesting for us to look at while he does it that was very like expressionistic and charming like i said fellini-esque i think i mean i guess it's from classic hollywood too there's a lot of western influences on this i think even with the music itself i found a lot of the music choices very interesting there's a lot of classical music here mm -hmm. when he approaches the shop after they hit the ball through the window or whatever it's playing like carmen a slower version of like the interlude oh uh, yeah i heard something like that. i'm really bad at recognizing specific music i just don't have that talent and I was like, wait, I know this one. Yeah, I, I remember that too. At one point in the movie, I was like, that's weird. That's so crazy. It's like kind of doing it, like kind of Mickey Mousing it, where he's like in step with him. I'm like, this is so bizarre. Like this isn't an original composition, yet it's being used in a different way. Like it's not an exact recording. Yeah, he's using it like it was composed for the scene. Yeah, they like recomposed an existing song for it. Yeah, just like arranging, editing it. Yeah, I thought that was cool. I thought a lot of the music in the film was great. Yeah, it was a lot of classical, but it was it was very nice. And I thought it like fit, especially because these two people like. They like classical music and they want to go see a concert, but then they can't, and then they get to have their concert at the end. Yeah, have they considered not being poor? 
but yeah, no, that scene was it was beautiful, and I was so happy to finally have. There's like one crazy crane shot that I like don't know how they did, where it starts on Masako's face and like zooms up to like the top of the amphitheater, looking down at him. Yeah, that felt like a very Hollywood shot with like the dollies in and out and everything. Yeah. I was like, how do they, how could they afford this? Yeah, <laughs> like, very neorealist. We snuck in the crane. You can use cranes <laughs> if you want. It, it was, it was a construction crane. We just couldn't see this. I was like, maybe. They were just dragging him up like scaffolding. It was just a guy climbing onto another guy. Climbing onto another guy. Yeah, they were the just camera. handing the, ca- the camera off really smoothly. Yeah, beautiful scene. And then they, they both start crying. Yeah, they do that a lot. And then she runs up to him and they finally have their big movie kiss. And then she takes the train home at like 4 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, I know. Like it, it really. I'm like, how late is it? This is you did so much. Like I can't do anything with my day. I can barely get it up to record this podcast. In retrospect, considering how much happens, I think it is a nice story. It didn't need to be two hours long, especially because one hour in, it's still miserable. And I'm like, how is this movie twice the length of this? And it already is so miserable. I think it's a little loose and like could have been tightened up. But I, I still was pretty surprised with how much I enjoyed it because I just really didn't know what to expect with this one. I hadn't heard anything about it and there's only a few left that I haven't seen from him before. So I was really curious with this one. There's always a risk of it being bad and it's not bad. Now we'll talk about our favorite shots. So my favorite shot is uh, from after Yuzo gets the crap kicked out of him by the scalpers and he and Masako are standing underneath like an overhang and behind them is a bunch of bars from a gate or a fence or something yeah like some courtyard i really like that that was uh very much externalizing them being in prison and just feeling trapped by their circumstances they're taking up the entire frame there's no where for them to go it has a lot of layers of focus with the buildings mm-hmm. behind them the rain in between and then them and then the fence reminds me a lot of a one car Y in the mood for love shot and so that's always tickles my fancy yeah, no, that was really nice. I, I noticed that one too in the movie. It was just, like standing out as being like very just like effective where it was placed. Like very deliberate. Yeah. Uh, there was a few shots that I liked. Nothing really stood out to me. Normally if something stands out to me immediately. I'll be like, that's the one. But I ended up picking the one where it's just the two of them standing directly centered on the amphitheater. It's just one of those really nice shots. You know, the couple you see them from behind, they're very characteristic as they've been the whole movie. And they're just kind of looking up at this empty amphitheater. And it, you know, reflects back to their first concert that they went to. And you can, like, already kind of, if you know, tell what might happen here. But it's just, like, a very pretty and hopeful shot. And it just made me happy to see it. I think he did a really nice job with all the couple shots. Like, um, on the swings in front of the moon, the one that you said. He, he was good at using these two characters as, like, a visual motif in the movie. Yeah, it's kind of like an optimistic version of the one I did from, like, a little farther away. The radiating outward of the amphitheater. Yeah, yeah, they're looking up at this big structure. Big things are coming. Watch this space. <laughs> Watch this amphitheater space. Yeah, it was, it was nice, for sure. And that whole scene was, like I said, very beautiful. So yeah, I think that wraps up our discussion of One Wonderful Sunday. Yeah, we're recording this on A Wonderful Sunday. Whichever of us you ask, it might be more or less wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I think I might have enjoyed it more than No Regrets for Our Youth, but I think that No Regrets for Our Youth is a better movie. That's fair. I, I definitely like No Regrets for Our Youth better, but like, there was something here. It was good. And I mean, I thought it was fine. <laughs> I didn't like this movie that much. I thought it was okay. I thought there were some very charming sequences. Halfway through, I was like, I hate this movie. And then with the second half, I was like, all right, that redeemed itself enough. I thought the movie was a pleasant surprise. I didn't know much about it. Mm -hmm. And like, this is really the end of a Kurosawa era for us. 
Yeah, the end of the batter or the opening era. This is the, his first act, and now we're going to hit like the real, true Kurosawa when we get Toshiro Mifune in next week. I didn't know what to expect, and I'm not a big fan of neorealism personally as like a style. I think neorealism is fine. I don't think he did a good job with it. Yeah, but I mean, this is kind of like... Semi-magical realism. It, it's like kind of Fellini-esque, actually. It, it is. Well, he... It's actually, it's very Capra-esque, which is another big influence on him. Okay, I believe that too. The, yeah. He said the the ending is taken straight from 100 Men and a Girl, which I've never seen. Yeah, okay. I figured that was not an original idea on his part. That would have been more significant if it was. But it was a cool scene. Overall, like, I, I thought it was a pleasant surprise. I enjoyed it. Like, I thought it was simple, and it's, it was a little more loosely, you know, kind of made and directed, which Kurosawa acknowledges. And he won Best Director and Screenwriter at the Mainichi Film Concourse for this, and he's like, I didn't deserve that. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I wasn't very happy with my own job on this one, and I think that I stepped up for a drunken angel. Okay, I'm glad he thinks that. But I also thought that this was cool as, like, still a little bit more of a political movie than we're typically going to get from Kurosawa. Oh, that, yeah. It definitely felt political. But it's kind of an inverse of No Regrets for Our Youth, mm-hmm. where this time we're focusing on the poor instead of the rich. I'd probably give it, like, an 8 out of 10, honestly. Probably, like, 4 out of 5 star. I, I, like, I just think it's sweet. It feels very different from every film we've seen since. And it's going to feel different than a lot of films we're going to see in the future. Mm-hmm. I like movies that just take place over one day. I, I just think that that's a nice structure for movies. I do. I do. do. I like that. It just feels very optimistic. I think it carries a good message and one that I should probably listen to more. So I thought the first third and last third were very good, but the middle third made me so mad that I couldn't handle it. But I, I in the end, gave it a three out of five on my, my review. But, you know, it was still good and I thought it was solid. And I'm still excited to see his future work. It was nice. Though, there is one update I want to do for those who are following very closely at home, which is I assume no one. I have officially started reading The Idiot, which I said that I will read for this podcast in preparation for when we watch The Idiot. The Idiot is a 578-page novel by Dostoevsky. It's a 19th-century Russian literary novel that I'm reading the whole thing for this podcast. Nice and dry. Those following along at home, I'm 100 pages in, and I got 500 more to go. (laughs) And I got, like, four weeks. So we'll see. We all have our crosses to bear. I don't know if we'll be drunk for the next show, but... Oh, we should. That'd be funny, but no, probably not. (laughs) We will be covering the next phase of Kurosawa with Drunken Angel. Hell yeah. The first of many unions of Kurosawa's two golden boys, Takashi Shimura, and the introduction of Toshiro Mifune. And the introduction for a new bit on our podcast. Hell yeah. I'm very excited for next week. I've not seen Drunken Angel, and I'm excited to see what the level we get to. I haven't seen Drunken Angel in a while, and... I had mixed feelings about it when I saw it, so I'm excited to check that out. So we'll see you next time. Bye.